5 p.m. on a Thursday, which means you are at the bar with me, Nez Stepman of Independent Women's Forum, and my colleague, Jennifer Braceres of the Independent Women's Law Center. Um, so welcome to our bi-weekly virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Um, today, one of the issues that we're discussing, or the issue we're going to be primarily discussing, um, is the influence, the institutional influence of wokeism, of that ideology on the legal system, not just up through the law schools, into the ABA, into, um, you know, the judiciary itself. And we have Aaron Sabarian here. To, he wrote that blockbuster piece for Barry Weiss for her Substack, uh, talking about sort of the institutionalization of this ideology throughout the legal system. So we will get to that in just a minute. But first, Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Women's Bill of Rights that IWF launched today? Sure, yeah. Um, IWF and well, actually Independent Women's Voice, our, our C4 arm, along with Independent Women's Law Center, put out today a very short Women's Bill of Rights that aims to just really simply define basic terms that seem to need defining these days. Um, terms like female, woman, mother, um, sex, what these things mean in common understanding and what they should mean under state and federal law, because those terms seem to be in dispute these days. So we thought we should, to wrap up March, which is Women's History Month, that we would unveil um, this Women's Bill of Rights, which we hope will be um, passed into law at both the federal level and state and local levels, because uh, it's it's long overdue. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons this is so important, and apologies, I, I used IWF instead of V. This is definitely a IWV product, um, C4 and C3 distinctions. But, um, you know, this is so important because, uh, as we saw with, with the confirmation hearings, um, th there are so many people who refuse to define the word woman, to refuse to define sex. And this is more than a semantic sort of exercise, there is a lot of really important civil rights law that uses the word sex, for example, Title VI, Title IX, right? Um, th these are really important federal civil rights statutes that depend on what the definition of sex is. And in fact, we are anticipating that for Title IX, um, the Biden administration will put out shortly, we'll put out regs and we'll talk about it when it happens, but we'll put out regs um, essentially defining sex as including gender identity. Now that's a massive shift in the federal law um, and, and a transformation of our civil rights law. So uh, th this is not an empty sort of statement uh, when it comes to the Women's Bill of Rights. This is actually really, really critical um, for how our civil rights law operates and, and uh, yeah. how we understand, for example, uh, bans against discrimination on the basis of sex. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, it's really important to um, the Women's Bill of Rights is important to even begin to have these conversations, right? So we deliberately crafted it as something that hopefully anybody could sign on to, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or, you know, a liberal or a conservative. Um, it, the, the Women's Bill of Rights doesn't say, for example, that a state or local government or that the federal government couldn't protect gender identity under civil rights law. Um, it's simply requires them to do that separately, not sort of secretly through the back door by redefining what current law already says, um, by redefining the term sex. So, you know, conceivably, I mean, you and I have talked about this so many times, you know, 
whether it's about the Equality Act or the Equal Rights Amendment or the Title IX regulations, um, these definitions matter. And conceivably, this is something, you know, I look at this and I say, this is something that somebody, even somebody who favors the Equal Rights Amendment, for example, could sign on to, right? Because the Equal Rights Amendment prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. Well, what does that mean? You know, part of our objections to it is that it's not clear what it means, but we have other objections to the ERA too. Like we don't think that every sector of life should be fully integrated, right? We don't, in terms of sex, we don't think that men and women should have to share bathrooms and dorm rooms and all that stuff. But conceivably, you know, somebody could say, well, I'm for the ERA, but I, I want to define sex as biological. And um, so we're hoping that people across party lines will sign on to it. We actually wrote it with a radical feminist group, Wolf, that we've worked with on other things. And, and um, a lot of our partners from Wolf have been on at the bar and, and we've worked with them in the past. We've actually, I think this really has brought together um, different different sides of various questions. Um, yeah, and, um, I know I'm surprised, right, as, as an a avowed anti-feminist um, <laughs> that I am suddenly fighting alongside feminists, but a very small, I will point out, a small minority of feminists. Most of academic feminism is all on board with redefining the meaning of sex and with biological males and women's spaces, which isn't self-talking. I think it's funny because I was at a meeting about this with um, a British feminist named Kelly Jean. Um, she goes by Posey Parker online with her, with her screen name, but she's a British feminist. And Kara Dansky, who's a radical feminist, um, a woman from Concerned Women for America, who's, you know, a, a conservative uh, Christian women's group, and me, and, you know, I sort of consider myself a conservative feminist, right? So we have all, all aspects of the spectrum there, standing shoulder to shoulder, no daylight between us on this issue, right? I mean, and we couldn't disagree more on other issues like, taxes and foreign policy and all sorts of other things. But on this, we're, we're shoulder to shoulder. So um, we hope it's something that will bring people together. If you're interested in learning more about the Women's Bill of Rights, you can go to IWV.org. You can uh, read it. You can sign it as a petition, lend your name to the effort. You can see some of the people who have endorsed the effort and um, hopefully it'll get some traction. And we just dropped that link in the Facebook. If you're watching on Facebook Live, there's the link down there um, at IWV slash campaign slash women's bill of rights. So um, go ahead and check that out. Please, please help us circulate that. I think it's really important that people, um, especially elected officials, be put on the spot and ask the same question uh, the Supreme Court nominee was, right? What is a woman? How are you going to define sex in federal law? Because these are not academic. These are not like sort of side questions. These have really tangible consequences for women and girls. And we're really seeing that around the country. Um, but now we want to, to switch gears a little bit. We want to bring on Aaron Sibarium. Um, He's over at the Free Beacon. Uh, and he has written just this absolutely blockbuster, well-reported piece um, over at Barry Weiss's Substack, uh, Common Sense, uh, where he just goes through all kinds of levels of the legal system. And he shows how um, this ideology, um, we can broadly call it wokeness. Um, I really haven't found a better word, even though that, that word kind of annoys me, not for the reasons that it annoys some people. Um, I don't think it's offensive or anything like that. I just think it's somewhat imprecise and vague. Um, but nevertheless, I haven't found a better one. So we're going with wokeness. It's also, it's also a leftist word, right? Its origins were, were leftist. You know, they- yeah, as, as soon as those words 
<laughs> as soon as they get nailed down on something, that word becomes a persona non grata on the left and it becomes an insult. But yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> Aaron, can, can you uh, maybe talk us through like the, the basic argument um, of this, this piece that you published with Barry uh, and, and where you see the influence of this ideology, like in what sort of levels of the legal system you see it making headway? Sure. Um, thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, I would say the the argument in, well, the argument really in like two sentences is everyone thought those crazy college kids would grow out of it. They didn't. And now they're about to control the legal system. Um, and to expand on that a little more, uh, you know, a lot of the convulsions that we saw circa 2013 to 2015 on undergraduate college campuses uh, have now since reached law schools and not just a few law schools like Yale, it's reached all the law schools and it's not just a few kids, it's the administrators, it's the professors, it's the entire academic apparatus um, administrative apparatus, at least. Uh, and now, uh, those graduates of law schools are starting to populate and change, uh, the character of the legal system. So, uh, well, I, I would actually, I, I loved your piece, by the way, but I would take a, a step further, a step back in time further and say that I, I mean, we didn't call it wokeness then, but when I was in law school, in, in the early to mid 90s, um, at least at certain elite law schools, there was a very strong current of this uh, happening. Um, yes. in and, and a lot of those people, people who graduated law school, you know, in between 1992 and 1997, for example, are now um, at the highest levels of power, right? They are uh, Supreme Court nominees. They are. Uh, they were. You know, Barack Obama was president of the United States. He was one of them who graduated law school during that time. Um, they are. You know, uh, deputy assistant secretaries of blah blah blah. They are cabinet secretaries. They are. They are federal judges. Um, so it's not just that it's coming. They're there, and um, you know, I think what you're seeing is a bigger wave. Of it, there was more of a trickle when I was yes, there. Yes, yes. I, I would also, I would also add that I think um, a lot of the radical kind of feminism and gender stuff, I think, leaked out and became a little more mainstream in some ways before some of the crazy race stuff. Um, I'm thinking of Catherine McKinnon and how she sort of influenced you know, mm -hmm. hostile environment, you know, civil rights law, workplace environment stuff, um, and other things like, you know, on, on me too, like questions, uh, you know, there was a lot of hypersensitivity around gender and sex in the nineties that did effectively right. get written into law. The thing is now, right. You're seeing it not just with gender, but with race. So right. for example, you know, you have all these high profile initiatives to just do over, race discrimination, you know, we've talked about, I think you guys had me on to talk about uh, racism, race and racial discrimination in uh, the allocation of COVID drugs, um, right? And, and the thing is, a lot of people will comfort themselves by saying, ah, but you know, that violates civil rights law and that violates the 14th Amendment. So, you know, well, 
it's okay. The law will, the law will slap this all down. Well, what happens when this stuff gets to law firms and gets to judges, you know, and gets to the American Bar Association, right? right? Um, I think what was so critical about your piece is that, um, whereas before people that had some of these views were starting to, you know, infiltrate our major institutions, what's really different now is that there's not a respect for the basic underlying premise of our legal system, which is that everybody deserves the right to counsel. And so whereas before people might've had substantive views that were crazy, they at least thought that everybody deserved a lawyer and everybody deserved a vigorous defense. And they did not view the system itself um, as corrupt, but now they do. And talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so it's increasingly difficult, I would say, for disfavored people to find representation, at least at um, a lot of big elite law firms. There, obviously, there are conservative litigation boutiques. So, you know, I'm not saying that it's impossible for anyone on the right to get representation. Of course, that's not true. But there has clearly been a change if you talk to lawyers and a lot of these big law firms uh, regarding um, the the boundaries of what is and is not considered an acceptable representation. Um, you know, it used, someone had a good quote where they said it used to be that, you know, people would just say, all right, maybe it's a pro, it, it's a Catholic hospital system and I'm pro-choice, but like, you know, whatever, you just kind of sucked it up and did the work. And, and maybe if you personally had a really strong view on abortion, they'd say, okay, well, you personally don't have to work on this case. But now it's like a lot more lawyers are saying this about a lot more topics. And so it's pretty hard to corral the staff at law firms to take uh, various causes and cases, first of all. But then the other thing that's changed is that um, corporate America and, and the other clients that these law firms have they've all gone woke too. And what the woke clients will do is they'll pressure law firms to drop their less woke clients. Um, and that's, you know, pressure with a fair bit of teeth because, you know, if the, if say Coca-Cola says, well, we don't like that you are representing such and such Trump person or Harvey Weinstein or whatever, you know, maybe we'll go to this other law firm. Well, you're in kind of a bind because Coca-Cola is a big client. You don't want to lose their business. Um, so both from within as sort of the, you know, the legal profession changes and law schools turn out more and more uh, ideologues. And then from without, as just the broader culture has been captured by this, which then trickles down into sort of economic pressures. You have this sort of pincer that has made it materially more difficult for law firms to represent controversial clients. Um, so there, there are two examples of this, uh, of exactly what you're talking about that, that you know, I've per personally witnessed. One is here in Boston, um, the law firm that I used to work for represented Catholic Charities. And, you know, Catholic Charities is a major social service organization um, in this town and, and, and in the country. Um, but they came under pressure. And this was, this was, again, a little bit before the current era of extreme wokeness, but, but the law firm came under severe pressure because the Catholic Church um, didn't support gay marriage. This was in the days before 
gay marriage was legal in every state in the country. I think it, I think it was legal in Massachusetts at the time. So I don't really know what the big issue was, but, um, and the law firm ended up dropping Catholic charities as a client, which was absurd because actually the charitable arm, right? Catholic charities didn't, I, I, I guess maybe, I guess the only way it affected uh, their position on that, I think they weren't, they must've run an adoption or foster child um, section and they weren't, they wouldn't place children with gay foster parents or gay adoptive parents. That must've been the, the hook or how, how it was relevant, but they did, they pressured the firm to drop Catholic charities as a client, which, you know, just seemed, it, it didn't seem right because as you say, everybody has a right to a, a defense and Catholic charities was paying their bills. So um, I'm not really sure, you know, what the issue was. The other, the other place where I saw this um, was in the case of my classmate, Ron Sullivan, um, mm -hmm. who was a classmate of mine at Harvard Law School, now a professor at Harvard Law School. And, you know, Ron, I have to say, is on the woke side of the political spectrum himself. Um, and he and his wife, Stephanie Robinson, were, um, I, they called the masters at the time of one of the colleges at Harvard. Um, and he's a criminal defense attorney, has been his whole professional life, and was representing Harvey Weinstein. And yeah. the students basically ran them out of town. I mean, he still teaches at Harvard Law School, but his contract was not renewed um, for being a, a, a college master, advisor, dorm yeah. leader, whatever they call it now, um, because the students said they were afraid based on his representation of Harvey Weinstein. I mean... Well, and, and something like that happened actually in a law firm, um, David Boyce's law firm, Boyce, Schiller, Flexer. And, and for those who don't know, David Boyce is like very liberal lawyer. He represented Al Gore against George Bush in front of the Supreme Court, you know, helped pave the way for gay marriage in California. Yeah, this this guy is, is you know, Democrat on the left through and through. But he ended up uh, getting in some trouble at his law firm because he had, he too had been involved in representing Harvey Weinstein. Um, and so a young woman apparently at one of his, at a law firm retreat basically stood up and said, some lawyers at the firm feel uncomfortable being here because you represented Weinstein. She, she, yeah. You know, she addressed this to two boys um, and wanted to know if he would pay those lawyers severance pay while they looked for other jobs um, at presumably less problematic firms. And, you know, I, I mean, so that's an example of what, what, you know, this is not just at Harvard, the kids, you know, yelling at the guy and saying, we don't want you as a dean or whatever. This is in law firms, you know, people are getting chewed out for representations that they've taken in the past um, or are currently taking on. Well, let's back up here for a moment. Um, I want to talk about the different levels that you uh, sort of go through in your piece. So there is this level at the law firm. We have essentially young associates um, who are woker than the partners and um, are are essentially threatening to, to switch law firms or um, to refuse to work in an environment where somebody in the law firm is representing a bad client, right? Um and then you, you turn to the ABA. Uh, can you talk a little bit about 
the, the new requirements from the ABA and then how they are being carried out. Um, for example, in Georgetown law, you have a follow-up piece um, saying yeah. essentially Georgetown has, has taken this requirement and really fleshed it out, um, set the standard, if you will. Uh, yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that? Well, well, yeah. So, so they, they have, although actually there's, there's a little interesting uh, kind of prehistory there, which is that uh, Georgetown was one of a bunch of schools that actually asked the American Bar Association to dictate kind of standards on anti-racist education. Uh, the dean of the school was one of 150 who signed a letter uh, asking the American Bar Association to make as an accreditation requirement that um, that law schools have to teach about cross-cultural competency and racism. And then so what happens? Uh, less than two years later, uh, in um, February of this year, the American Bar Association basically adopts almost the exact requirement that uh, all these law deans had asked for. Uh, and it basically says you need to learn about racism, bias, cross-cultural competency, both at the start of your law school career and then at least once more before graduation. Um, and so the assumption is that the legal system is racially biased, right? Yes. Yes. This oh. is, this is clearly, yes. And, and one of the requirements actually, it, it's, it's, it's more extreme than that. It, it's that in the legal ethics class that people are already required to take, um, now they're going to be required to teach that one of the obligations of a lawyer, the ethical obligations, is to, these are to be clear, these are professional obligations. Yes. These yes. are not For like, because I think people outside of the law, whatever uh, community of people who have either been to law school or practice law, like these are not like suggestions about how to be a good person. These are ethical no. obligations yeah. that are assumed as professional obligations yes. that you have to, you know, understand and uphold in order to yes. keep your license to practice. Yes. And and so one of those is going to be that 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 you have to learn is that lawyers have an obligation to rectify racism in the law. So so here that that's gonna be like mandatory to teach in every mandatory legal ethics class. Except like, the problem is they define racism in a way that isn't necessarily the way I don't know, even average no. liberal people yeah. would define racism, right? Because they define racism based on statistical impact. Correct. And, and now, yes, I mean, that's obviously true. I would note that even if they didn't define it that way, they would still be dictating the content of curricula in a, in a, in a way that they don't really, or they haven't traditionally done. So mm -hmm. even if that weren't true, this would be overreach. But yes, it makes it worse that they have this really crazy definition of racism. Um, but so yeah, how, how does that manifest? Well, um, even before the, acquire, the requirement became official, a lot of schools started basically not just doing like a couple orientations, you know, seminars on racism, but like making kids take entire classes um, on, I mean, maybe they may not call it critical race theory, but that's actually what it is. You know, it's sort of assessing the ways in which ostensibly neutral laws actually um, perpetuate and embed um, racial inequality. That's Georgetown is, is probably the most prominent to adopt a requirement like that. All kids are going to need to take an elective class that's been certified by the 
Associate Dean of Equity and Inclusion to focus on the importance of questioning the law's neutrality and its differential effects on subordinated groups. So, and so it's not it, even like you have a choice, right? So, under no, yeah. So, so every 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 kid will have to take a class. That's the, the, the yes, that the DEI yeah. person has and like colleges. They call it colleges yeah. have diversity requirements. Like you have to take some class about something that's outside the you know the first world. Like if you're a history major, you have to yeah. take the history of something. You know whether it's South yeah. America or Africa. Yeah. When I was when I was an undergrad, I took a. Um, you know, East Asian art class, right? Right. But <laughs> so that, yeah, this is this is much more choosing yeah. from a menu or a catalog. Right. No, this is a lot more overtly ideological. I mean, the premise of the class has to be that questioning, you know, racism is like or questioning neutrality, the law's neutrality is important, um, and that there is sort of this racism that's built into everything. Um, and then and also though, the other thing that in some ways this is even worse, is they're trying to integrate this idea into every mandatory first year law class. So property law will be kind of taught from this perspective. And eventually the goal is for like every class to, 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 in, I mean, they phrase it like, well, they'll incorporate this theme, but you know, we all kind of know what that means. And given that it's already a liberal school, it's that every class will presumably teach this as gospel, or at least as very close to it. Oh, and that's um, a big infringement on academic freedom for the professors. I mean, what if the professors don't want to teach a critical race theory? Well, yeah, I mean, and, and, and I would imagine those ones, to the extent they exist, will find ways of saying that they fulfilled the requirement without, you know, maybe being quite as insane about it. But, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's yeah, just, they'll, they'll assign one law review article from Derek Bell on, right. you know, how contract law is, is racist and check the box and call it a day. Yeah. But, you know, some, some professors are going way beyond that. So for example, yeah, I, 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 I have these slides in my article from, um, uh, a first year property class at Georgetown where it asserts that the birth that modern property law was birthed in slavery and the dispossession of native Americans, um, rather than say, you know, British common law, like court cases that, that are traditional in, in a first year law property class. Right. right. Um, that, that, that's, that is different. Um, that is not the narrative that's traditionally been taught in law schools. Uh, and, you know, then you have, like, you know, she's literally quoting, like, sort of pop anti-racist authors and asking students to apply their definition of cultural appropriation to intellectual property law. Um, yeah, so this is not, this is not being done in a neutral right. way. And, and then there's, like, course syllabi, where on the syllabi it says that an objective of the course is to gain an appreciation for how, you know, like, our, you know, racism is integral to our concept of public safety or, or things like that, where if you read it closely, the actual premise of the syllabus is that racism is encoded into a bit, some kind of legal institution. It's not just that they include a big section debating the extent to which racism shapes right. criminal justice policy, which would be like pretty reasonable to include, but th that the, that it does is just assumed in from the outset in the class. So yeah. Let me I mean, ask you this: Are there any deans or um, professors at prominent law schools that are vocally objecting to these new accreditation requirements or pushing back? Um, 
I think the, you know, not everyone signed the letter asking the ABA to implement these requirements. I, I could be wrong, but if I recall correctly, Cornell and like one or two other places that you've heard of did not sign it. Now, that's not really the same as actively pushing back, but it's, you know, at least not actively putting your name on it. It, um, it, it strikes me that we are already deep into the rabbit hole if, if like, we're looking for the absence of names. Yes. No, but that, and to be clear, to be clear, there's only, like, 200 or so law schools in the country, So, and it was actually more than 150. So you are talking about the vast, vast majority of deans, and and... Yeah, yeah. So maybe Cornell was absent. I'm just like surprised. Stanford, not, you know, like a George you know, Mason or a, uh, you know, uh, maybe George you know, Mason, George maybe Mason law school. That's yeah, George that. George Mason might be might be absent, but I mean, there that's like one school, and and you know, uh, there were actually um, nine very well credentialed Yale professors, including a couple who were former deans of Yale Law School. Mm-hmm. To who who did sign a, a statement saying these standards are a bad idea, you shouldn't do them um, because these are old-fashioned liberals who believe in academic freedom. Um, oh. But, you know, to no avail, right? The American Bar Association, this was not a close vote. This was like, there were maybe like 30, 40 dissenting votes at most and then like 300 something, you know, in support of this. So yeah, this, this is not close. Um, and of course, you know, we don't need, we don't need to go too far into this unless you want to, but, um, you know, at, at some schools where there have been kind of fed sock events that are shouted down, like say, or like say UC Hastings, um, where Ilya Shapiro got shouted down, you did see the Dean send out a pretty good statement, you know, saying this is not okay. You can't shout down people you don't like. And then the, the Dean of Berkeley, UC Berkeley law, um, after that, and after the Yale, law school thing um recently wrote an op-ed in the washington post basically saying the same thing that this is unacceptable and kids who do this should be subject to discipline the dean of bc law bc law yeah so 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 there's been a little pushback but you know right i don't know like none of these kids have been disciplined to my knowledge and at yale they certainly haven't been and you know let's 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 talk about this really quickly because um, one of the most substantial pushbacks that actually did happen, right, um, happened within the judiciary. Um, and and you have a section on the judiciary and you have a section on the fact that, you know, these, mm-hmm. these um, sort of students, they don't just go on to pressure their firms into dropping Harvey Weinstein, right? Um, they, they, as a client, they go mm-hmm. into... Um, they go into the judiciary. Ultimately, many of them do, uh, the most successful of them. Um, and, and we had a pushback within the judiciary, right? So we have DC Circuit Judge Lawrence Silberman sent yeah. an email out um, and, and uh, basically saying that federal judges should consider not hiring any student who engages in this kind of activity, that the inability um, to respect the First Amendment uh, is, is disqualifying for working in the American judicial system. So you have this very strong statement and then you kind of have not a lot of response from within the judiciary. Like somebody's like, stop emailing me, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, um, I, I, I suspect there are a lot of judges, especially conservative judges who, you know, agree with this. Um, both that's both based on intuition and some, you know, through the grapevine things that I've heard. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, the, the reality is that 
the original, as you said earlier, Jennifer, you know, the stuff isn't totally new. And look, I mean, disciples of Derek Bell are now federal judges. So one of the examples I cite in my piece is a uh, Wilhelmina Wright, who was actually briefly considered by Biden for the Supreme Court. So, you know, she, she could have easily gotten onto the highest court of the land. She's a federal judge in Minneapolis. Um, and she gave a, an arsonist who ended up killing um, a father of five um, because he, the guy was trapped in a building that the arsonist burned. She ended up giving this arsonist a much lighter sentence than the than federal sentencing guidelines called for. And, you know, on its own, right, you could argue, well, intent matters. And maybe if the guy didn't mean to kill anyone, that should be relevant. Okay, fine. But, but the thing is, that's in, in context, that's not really all that she seemed to be saying. She, the, the prosecution itself was like, well, he really believed he was engaging in the language of the unheard, you know, and he was protesting for racial justice, even though he got carried away. And the judge seemed to buy that argument. Um, and so one strongly suspects, given the circumstances of that case, that uh, the fact that the guy was protesting for BLM, I mean, really rioting, but, but but because he was aligned with BLM, seems to have gotten a lighter sentence than he would have otherwise. I mean, the, counter, the, the useful counterfactual is, suppose he did the exact same thing, but he did it to an abortion clinic. And he didn't mean to kill anyone, you know, but he just really believed that he was standing up for the unborn. Yeah, no, I mean, this judge, we all know that this judge would not have lowered the sentence to the degree that she did. I mean, we all know I mean, that. Um, you're, what and, you're talking about now is, is the death of a neutral application of the law, which yeah, is a, yeah. a, you know, bedrock principle of it's, living in a free country. And and furthermore, of a, a, a principle that allows people with wildly differing views in the United States to live alongside each other as citizens, yes. right? This appeal to the idea that, you know, we're all equal in the eyes of the law and we can all you know, have our day in court, get our due process, be judged equally, not without regard to sort of political, um, political alignment or, or anything outside of the facts right. of the and the law. Like this is, this is really fundamental and scary um, because once yeah. people stop trusting in the rule of law, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I don't know if, if you guys are, I'm, I'm probably a bigger fan of the Western genre than, than either one of you guys, but um, you know, the, <laughs> When, when the rule of law collapses, you have the rule of the gun or you have essentially the the, the rule of yeah. capricious men, right? Uh, capricious elites that decide what is right and wrong in any individual instance. Uh, and, and that could be based on whether you're in favor or out of favor with, with the powers that be. Right. I mean, yeah. and I would note that this this impulse in Ray's jurisprudence goes back to when she was a student in at Harvard Law School, where she took a class with Derek Bell, the founder of critical race theory. And we know that because Derek Bell published a paper in which he included student reading responses from the class, and hers are some of the responses. And in one of them, she says something about how, like, neutral doctrines of American property law, you know, are basically, she says something like they're every bit as damaging as overt racial supremacy. I mean... Yeah, it's not subtle. Uh, and but, that's that. Then she was saying that back in like the 80s. And then, you know, there's a case about the destruction of property that results in the destruction of life. And, you know, 
just so happens that she she seems to kind of put her thumbs on the scale, right? In, you know, in a way that goes goes beyond what the law or sentencing guidelines, you know, dictates. Um, yeah. Can uh, I ask you a, a hopeful or at least um, something that would lead to a clash or a serious pushback, right? Yeah. These schools' elite status is ultimately not only dependent on whether, you know, sort of private law firms will hire their grads for a lot of money. It's also dependent on, for example, something like clerkships or, um, you know, arguing in appellate court or arguing before the Supreme Court. Now, that's a relatively small slice of law, but it's still very important for prestige, right? When you were talking about, um, what's his name, Boys, uh, before, yeah. you know, yeah. one of the first things that, that is on his resume is the fact that he argued Bush v. Gore, right? Um, th these are important prestige you know, sort of elements or points um, in, in individual lawyers' favor and, and at the firm. Like if you can have a bunch of Supreme Court clerks, right, in your firm, like you can command a higher yeah. price. At what point does this come into direct clash with the judiciary that even with everything you just said about some of these sort of cultural revolutionaries making it all the way to the bench is now, especially after Donald Trump's term, is now like at least, you know, has a strong presence of conservatives. Um, and people who find sure. this kind of stuff, you know, pernicious. So at what point does it necessitate an alternative pipeline of credentials, right? Like at what point does a conservative judge say on the DC circuit, um, just stop looking to Yale and Harvard for clerks? Well, so I would love it if they would do something like that. And I do think that if the judges apply pressure, that may may move the needle a bit the reason i'm not super optimistic about that is you know what i think a lot of the judges understandably think the conservative ones is well we're only really hiring the fed sock kids from yale anyway and they're not doing this crazy stuff and it would be sort of unfair to punish those kids right um for the sins of their classmates but then the rest of the kids you know Maybe some of the judges are old-fashioned liberals and, and don't approve of the behavior, but probably a lot of them, you know, either they're woke or they may just, like, not feel strongly enough or care enough. And so so it, I think in order for this to really work, you know, yeah, you'd have to have a lot of judges essentially commit to a kind of collective punishment of Yale. Well, frankly, like there's no guarantee that the kids you're hiring from BU Law School or Wayne State Law School aren't going to be equally as woke. I mean, the rod is so deep. You yeah, know, yeah, right? that's true. I mean, I mean, so, so you know, I don't, I don't think it needs to be collective punishment in that sense. Like, yeah. you're going to have kids who go to Yale and build their credentials through FedSoc, right? Um, but that's going to be a smaller and smaller percentage. And what I'm saying is the percentages don't line up, right? Let's, let's say for the sake of argument, the federal judiciary is, you know, a third, a third, a third, right? A third yeah. sort of woke left, um, a third apolitical centrist, classical liberal, you know, whatever. And then a third sort of um, conservative, concerned actively about these kinds of issues, right? It strikes me that the elite law schools are not producing enough law clerks to staff the two-thirds, right? Like there's an overproduction of woke credentialed, let's say, clerks. There's a ton of them. And there's yeah. only maybe a third of the seats, if, if it comes to pass, that there's only maybe a third of the seats available to people with a certain kind of resume. It seems to me at some point, 
there has to be a, there, there will be a demand for credentialed conservative lawyers, whether that's at, you know, be in, in um, law firms that are able to say, argue yeah. or, um, where, where the swing vote is Justice Roberts, right? Like to, to be able to argue to Justice Thomas, um, to be able to understand, because it seems to me like that the, these, as crazy as this sounds, it seems to me that we are looking at a future where Yale and Harvard produce maybe like five people between them who are actually capable of making an originalist argument to an originalist Supreme Court. At some point, that has to matter, right? Unless the left guts the court and just like it makes well, it. Well, well, I mean, I, I think, I think my, I think, I think the numbers maybe are a little. I mean, there's a lot more people at Harvard. Like, like it. I, I guess what I would say is between Harvard and Yale, you you can basically cover the Supreme Court and probably a lot of other federal courts with like FedSoc people. I mean, I mean, I mean. Like, 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 I guess, I guess here's what I don't quite get. Like, like if you're asking whether there's going to be demand for conservative, always going to be demand for conservative, smart conservative lawyers. Yes, there will be. Um, Unless conservatives stop attending Harvard. Yeah. I mean, and maybe they will. I look like they may, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if more conservatives now go to Harvard than Yale, given how, fucked up Yale is, um, pardon my French, but you know, uh, even, even there, like I, I, the other thing I think you, you got to keep in mind is that Yale law, it is still so prestigious. I mean, 20% of all law professors, law jobs in the country, I think in recent years, they've gone to Yale law grads, you know? So sure. Like you can, it, it may be that, that, if Yale goes too woke, um, conservatives will sort of shift away from it. It will lose a little prestige. And maybe that does, there is kind of a self-correcting mechanism where they, they feel like they have to get back into the rights, good graces. Um, it's possible. Uh, but, you know, that would really require, I think, just like zero conservatives to go to Yale Law and as long as there's like as many as currently go, and then they all get their like cushy clerkships with, you know, the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, it's kind of like, well, then there still are, then Yale's clerkship numbers are fine. And like, it just, it's not gonna, I think it's hard to move the needle unless the judges really do so coordinate in a, in a more that's aggressive that's what way. What I'm saying is that I do agree that it would require, um, I don't think it requires a total collective punishment hiring freeze on Yale, but it requires more judges to hire like Justice Thomas, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and maybe, and yeah, I mean, that might, look, I mean, that might, if if they do, that that might work. I mean, I, I guess I, I also mean, will say- I that's more of a systemic response. How about- how about a smaller response? Let's get rid of some of these horrible deans. And right? I mean, what what is the role of leadership here? Like, isn't there a classical liberal among them who will stand up and say, This is ridiculous? Well, we believe in the right to counsel, we believe in due process, we believe in the First Amendment. And no, you're not gonna scream down speakers, and no, you're not gonna demand that your law firm doesn't represent criminals or murderers or sexual sexual predators. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it seems, seems, 
you think, but look, like like who? My understanding is that of all the the plausible candidates for dean at Yale Law School, Dean Gherkin is probably among the least woke, which is saying something because she's been totally spineless and has and has capitulated to all of the insanity. Um, but but you know who's the alternative? I mean, look, I, what I think also needs to happen, and I'm not, again, I'm not super optimistic about this. Amy Chua for Dean. Yeah, but but like, but you know what? There needs to, the other thing is like donors, you need, you, this is the thing. You need like judges to basically come out and be like, we're we're going to do something about this. You know, we're going to, we're gonna, maybe they don't institute a hiring freeze or something, but they say we're going to have a strong presumption against Yale law grads, and you're going to need to prove that you're not one of these maniacs to be hired. And, you know, ideally, and, you know, I don't think that really works if it's just, you know, that's just the conservative judges. I do think you would need some more centrist or even left-wing ones to kind of do that, and I'm not optimistic about it. Um, But you'd also look like, for one thing, donors should, like, stop giving to these schools. And, 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 And also judges should just make more statements slamming them. Well, I'm proud to say I've given not one dime to Harvard Law School ever. Um, And my husband, I I hope, will no longer give any money to Yale Law School. Yeah, I mean, but no, but like seriously, if you know, you've got to, there's got to be like a coordinated effort to make them. I mean, the other thing is, you know, file lawsuits, like, like basically their lives need to be made so miserable that it's in their best interest to um, change course. And I don't really think that we're anywhere close to applying that level of pressure. I mean, the media stuff is nice. Like it makes them look bad. I do think that helps a bit, but you got to get people to say, Oh, wow, these reports coming out of Yale law school are insane. I'm going to get all my like most influential friends together and basically try to like tighten the screws until they have no choice, but to, to submit and be less crazy. I mean, to be clear, yeah. like your reporting on this has been awesome, but it's not as if there are lots of Aaron Sibariums running around holding their feet to the fire or that it's even getting into mainstream publications. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the a few of the stories have when they have gotten into mainstream publications, that's also when the pressure has been mm-hmm. the most acute. So like after the the trap house. Right. Scandal when like, you know, a bunch of Washington Post columnists were writing about it, yeah, they clearly were doing damage control. You're the um, one who's digging deep. We need to clone yeah. you. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I have sort of a related question here before we, we wrap up at the end of the hour. Um, speaking of applying screws, right? Uh, the other side is definitely going to apply screws. Um, and one of the ways, I, I guess I want to ask you, how far are we from a bar requirement that you know, makes you attest to some kind of DEI statement. Like, you know, how, how close are we to, um, you know, having to attest to something along the lines of this ABA requirement in order to practice law at all? Uh, well, fortunately, every state kind of has their own bar association and the ABA doesn't actually really control. Right, right. So what I'm saying is how close yeah. are we to like... Yeah you are trying to license, get your license to practice law. You were going to go take the bar in your yeah. state. How close are we to like New York or California? I think, uh, I think we're pretty close. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. Connecticut has, I don't know exactly what it is, but it has some requirement that, that 
um, is offensive to conservatives. I forget exactly what it is because I know a conservative law firm called me about trying to challenge it, finding a, an attorney in Connecticut who would be willing to challenge it. And sadly, they couldn't find a single person who'd be willing to go out on a limb and do that. Even the attorneys yeah. they spoke with who were Or, or something them. even easier, even something easier, like CLE requirement. What's to stop them from, from jamming this into the CLE requirements? Like you have to take a certain number of hours of continuing, whatever that stands for, continuing learning. Yeah, legal. Oh, well, that's right? already happened. I mean, I mean, I mean, oh, well, that's already. Uh, I think it may already. That all, that already may be there. I, I think it's just places. at least the the See ones that I've looked at. They they are just yes, you absolutely can do this stuff okay. for free credits, and it's 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 a it's, it is counts well, for free credits, but it's not the yeah. only thing that counts. Right? I think so, I think I think it's one of these things where there are other things that nominally count. But all of those things have been so suffused with it that in practice, even things that aren't DEI, it's kind of that's, there. that's definitely not true because I've given a bunch of CLE credit really? talks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's good <laughs> to hear. I think it's pretty that's easy. Good to hear. Still, I, I imagine that's a door they'll shut pretty soon. Well, just... wait, wait five years. Yeah. I mean, if I had to guess, it'd be like, yeah, wait, any any one of these things you're, you're like, eh, you know, is it how closer it's like, eh, see where we are in five years. It'll we'll, we'll probably be there or be extremely close i mean yeah i i and also yeah like like cle being it being required to do dei cle i mean i i don't know if there are any states that do that but i wouldn't you know i think there's a lot of soft pressure to do that already um and like just at people's law firms um and uh well there's this thing i didn't talk about this in my piece but the, you know there's this thing called 8.4 g which is a model aba rule that they encourage state bar associations to adopt and what 8.4 g says is basically it's basically a speech code that you know you lawyers like you know can be can be um held liable for for misconduct if they do anything that causes or one could reasonably anticipate would cause like offense or something. I mean, it's, it's I, I think that the really Canadian broadly worded I referred to is exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and they, I mean, they, they challenged it, I think successfully in Pennsylvania, I believe there's someone litigating it over there. Uh, but uh, that kind of thing, I suspect in some in part or full will be adopted by more blue states and, you know, it will be, uh, that will just increase the number of frivolous ethics complaints. It's not, I mean, it's not like there aren't frivolous, silly ethics complaints. Like some, some judge, uh, Edith Jones in Pennsylvania got an ethics complaint filed against her, which took like two years to, to clear, uh, because she said basically because she stated statistics about black on black crime in response to a question at like, UPenn law school. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the ethics complaints are already kind probably already have a bit of a chilling effect um you know even without these new rules and with the new rules i'm sure that that will just get worse so yeah i mean i and as i mean i think we may not be quite at that dystopia yet but like you know we'll we'll get there in the we're hovering years. there yes yeah. uh, we are hovering hovering in dystopia and of course there's there's the fact that all of these professional requirements can be used um, in much the way that Title IX is, right? So, like now we see the proliferation of Title IX 
uh, cases mm. being filed against professors who said something out of line. I mean, um, I know uh, there's the whole Roland Fryer case, right? Um, we don't, it's not clear at all uh, whether, mm-hmm. uh, he's at Harvard, right? Roland, or mm. yeah. he's at Harvard, but like, you know, was was sort of uh, extremely successful, was a golden boy professor in many ways, um, but had these very dubious Title IX charges filed after he put out some work that challenged, uh, let's say, let's call it the, the Kennedy disparity uh, theory, after he put out some um, social science work challenging um, some of this. So, you know, e- even, even if these laws on the face or even these professional requirements on their face uh, don't immediately yes. go into the the sort of um go off the edge of the event horizon into tyranny um they they can be used uh in, yes. in sort of bureaucratic Absolutely. process which i think is is what i think what what aaron's work why why your work is so important aaron and i really um i think it, it is invaluable is is you are really looking at sort of system by system what the standards the accreditation agencies, the the you know the ABAs of the world, the professional standards, the bureaucratic standards, the uh, sort of uh, all of these things sound very um, innocuous. Uh, best practices standards, stuff like that. All of these things sound very innocuous, but they shape um, they shape professions and they shape people because they have professional consequences. And when this ideological stuff gets um, in there, then they they end up, you know, being used to apply professional consequences ideologically, which is an incredibly powerful tool to keep people in line. Um, and and so, yeah, really, uh, as as I wrap up here, um, definitely go check out um, Aaron's Aaron's work on this at Free Beacon um, at Barry Weiss's Substack. So he's gone through he, he he I guess he went through the the medical system and how a lot of um, the sort of gatekeepers in the medical system have been uh, have been infected with this ideology and um, and now he's turning to the legal system and I, I imagine he'll keep reporting on that in the future but um aaron sibarium free beacon thank you so much for for coming on at the bar jennifer is there anything you want to wrap up with no just keep up the good work we hope to have you back again great thank you for having me and at the bar is a production of the independent women's forum it's available for viewing on facebook youtube and iwf.org you can also listen to it as a podcast on itunes spotify iHeartRadio, and anywhere you get your podcasts i hope you join us uh, in two weeks for another spirited conversation on the issues the intersection of law politics and culture uh, until then uh, cheers and uh, we'll see cheers. you next time <laughs>